Hello, everybody, and welcome to session 24 of the Fire Science Show. Before we start, I have an announcement. The moment this episode goes live, the Fire Science Show has passed 10,000 individual episode downloads. 10,000. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to it. It's 10,000 times someone tuned into the show to gain some new insights about the fire science. That's 10,000 chances to change uh, someone's professional workflows or challenge the way they are thinking. And I hope this is uh, something that uh, brings you to the show. When I've started this, uh, it was uh, kind of experimental to see if there is, let's say, a market for a very specific, well-produced show on a very narrow field of science, the fire science. And I was not really sure if <laughs> if it will work out because it seems that it's not going to be interesting to general audience and for fire engineers, it could actually be even too narrow with the topics. I was worried that people will not like it, but they do. And <laughs> that makes me very, very happy. So thank you once again. Thank you for all the support. Thank you for your messages that you sent to me. Thank you for sharing the episodes uh, with your friends and writing about them on the social media. Thank you for your donations through the website. They, they really help me uh, supporting the technicalities of the podcast and then help me keep going. Uh, so yeah, uh, 10,000 downloads. Wow, that's that's a lot. And there's going to be a lot, lot more. So yeah, I'm, I'm not stopping anywhere soon. Now to the, today's episode. My, my guest is a director in his own engineering company in Spain. Is uh, running a fire safety engineering office, so he knows a lot about what to expect from fire safety engineers. And he also led a very specific task uh, of the Society of Fire Protection Engineers. A few years ago, they've decided it's necessary to define what are the core competencies of a fire safety engineer. And my today's guest was leading this difficult task group. And they've produced a very nice core competencies document. And today we're gonna we're gonna discuss that in depth about what makes a fire safety engineer a fire safety engineer. Where is the boundary when one should become a fire safety engineer for the type of the work they are doing? And what are the perspectives for the fire safety engineers in the future? And I'm gonna spoil it a bit for you. They're great. <laughs> anyway. Please help me welcoming the director of JVVA, Fire and Risk, Jimmy Johnson. And let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. My name is Wojciech Wiczynski and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Fire Science Show. Today I'm with Jimmy Johnson from JVVA in Spain. Hey, Jimmy. Hi, Wojciech. Good to be here. I'm happy to have you here. And with Jimmy, we're going to talk a bit about fire protection engineers. But first, Jimmy, you're a Swedish guy who met an Italian guy in London and started together an engineering company in Spain. Tell me, how did it happen? And do you enjoy sunshine that much? Yeah, we really enjoy sunshine. That's why we're in Spain. That was the primary objective. But back to, to seriousness, yeah. Actually, both of us worked in a larger consulting company. No problem to say Arab here, <laughs> I don't think so, no? 
where we learned a lot and, and did a lot of work. And at some stage, we decided uh, we can also do this uh, on our own. So that was almost 10 years ago wow. now. And we created JVA. And that's how we are now. So that, that's so cool. And you don't look as uh, someone who will retire soon. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> you must really enjoy the, the, the sun and the climate. Before we jump into how we train fire safety engineer, tell me your story. How were you trained as a fire safety engineer? I guess that's a good way to start on the subject. It's a really good way to start, actually. I was quite lucky, I would say, when now when you know a bit more about what's out mm -hmm. there in the world. I started out as uh, with fine engineering at Lund University. Okay, so I started at Lund. That's a great place to start. <laughs> great place to start quite a few years back now, more than 20 years <laughs> back, actually. The good thing with Lund is it's really wide. Uh, you learn a lot of the special basic fields of, of fire engineering that you need to know. And then they go quite a lot into risk mm -hmm. engineering. That's a really good thing. When I was back in Lund, the good thing is that you got a lot of practical uh, exercises. Yeah. They got a nice uh, fire lab. You burn things, you measure it, and then you compare with equations and theory and see how it works. Mm -hmm. So you get to know you get to know quite early on in, in in your program how real fire is, what smoke is, and and so on. Another important aspect that I learned a lot from is that you get all the practical fire fighting side of it. Okay. Every summer you're working at the fire station, you get a basic fireman training from the university, working in conjunction with the fire academy in Sweden. Mm -hmm. So you get both the theory side and the practical side. And that for me has been a lot of help. So I think that's important for engineers to know about the practical side as well. Yeah, practical from both sides, designing the safety systems and using the safety systems during a critical situation. Exactly. In my career, I've pursued the master's in fire safety engineering in Warsaw Main School of Fire Service. This is an officer's school for Polish firefighters. So people who want to be officers and commanders in fire service go to the school. And there's like a so, sort of a joint fire protection engineering program where you can apply as a civilian and, and become a fire protection engineer. And you train with these guys and these guys train with us. So it's kind of great because every officer is a fire protection engineer in here because of this dualism. We, we got like a lot of fire protection and engineering core competencies being trained as a fire protection engineer, but also a quite significant exposure to firefighting and firefighting tactics, water supply and stuff like that. So that was also very interesting. One thing that I didn't get much in, in that school at that time, I know now it's a little bit better in, in there, was uh, I, I really didn't get much from smoke control <laughs> engineering, which I ended up doing as a professional. So that was a, a deep dive for me when I joined ITB a decade ago <laughs> to, to have to learn that competency from the scratch. But it, it, it was challenging, but doable. And now, now I'm perceived as an expert in that. So I, I guess it went not that bad at all. No, that, that's true. <laughs> that's, 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 that's funny, you know, these paths are usually very unique. But in the end, we meet at the same meetings in the same offices with all these interesting backgrounds. And actually, this diversity is something very nice for fire safety engineers because it, you cannot be master of all the crafts in fire safety engineering. No, definitely not. Actually, been working with consultancy most of, of my time, I mean, I've also been in, in academia and fire and rescue, but in consultancy, the fire engineering profile, the fire engineering person is actually 
one of the key persons in the project because he's involved and he discusses things with each discipline, with the electrical guys, with the structural, uh, with the mechanicals, with the plumbing. He's mm-hmm. involved in, in all this. So he actually, Fineer gets a more holistic view in a project. And that's necessary because pioneering affects all other disciplines. So that's one of the good things. And that's what you see in the projects as well. That's why we see so much diversity within the engineers as well. It's, uh, it's very positive. So uh, you said the uh, fire person is the, the one that's in the middle of a project. And that's also my experience. We often had it that people from other branches, let's say the plumbers came to us and asked about what the electricians just did in the shaft next doors because they didn't knew and they knew we will know because if they touch the shafts they m- must have consulted it with us so it's usually funny when you become the the connector in the building and if that's the case that's actually pretty cool because you can fire engineer the building it's much worse when you jump into the building in the last minute and have to learn everything that happens around but um, let's talk who is the fire engineer is there one definition of what a fire engineer is because every country has different in Sweden you have it different than in Poland and in Spain it's like completely different than in here and then probably you will jump into Middle East US Australia and each in every of these places it will be like very local about who this person is but yet the challenges and the fire and the science and everything is global it's the same everywhere so who is the fire engineer Yeah, that's a very good question actually. You, you, we can see it, we can see the same dilemma in in the codes. We know you just said it fires behave in the same way doesn't matter if you're in the states or in Australia or in, in China or or whatever. But the codes are are also different in these areas. You, you cannot build the same building in the states or in Poland or in Sweden or in Spain. There are different applications to it and still it's the exposure from the fire hazards are the same. Going back to your question, the, the definition of the fire engineer, the best definitions I've seen so far in, in written and, and kind of acknowledged is definitions that the SFP, Society of Fire Protection Engineers, have in some of their documents. They basically say that you need to be trained, you need to know the basics, and you need to be able to develop systems or methods to protect a building or people from the hazards of fire and a few more things. But I think that's the key thing. You need to be capable of actually developing solutions that protect buildings and people from the hazards of fire. That's, I think, is, is the key definition. And what, then whatever, if you're a, a fire safety engineer, a fire risk engineer, or a fire protection engineer, or a protection plumbing engineer, or a firefighting engineer, I've seen so many of these. It doesn't really matter. It, it's different. But it should be, I wish at, at some stage in the future, there's a commonality thing about this as well. I have the definition from the core competencies document, which I'll link, obviously, in the show notes. I have this definition in front of my eyes, so I'll read it aloud. A fire protection engineer is an individual who, by formal training and professional Experience carries the necessary competency and has the skills to provide guidance and direction to protect life, property, and environment from threats posed by fire and its related mechanism. So it's really nicely written. And when you were saying that in my head, I got this short idea that the fire engineer would be a person that can apply a global knowledge on fire to a local problem. And that would also sum it up 
quite nicely and this international challenge of the profession we we face right yeah it would it would it's a good That's, thing uh, i'm coining that yeah yes <laughs> good, <laughs> good good for us okay the fire protection engineer and their role in the project they're learned or produced by universities in a different way they come from different backgrounds in some countries uh, you enter fire protection engineering as your master course in some countries like in poland you would do full bachelor's and master's in fire safety engineering. You may come from outside of professional education to an office and in a way become a fire engineer, not knowing that you are becoming one. And that's a career path of many people that I know. It's a challenge that it's so scattered in, in a way. And I know that was one of the reasons why the group for defining the core competencies in the practical fire protection engineering was formed. And you were leading that task, writing this uh, minimum fire protection engineering competencies uh, guideline. So tell me, what were your goals or your first thoughts when you have entered this process of writing? What did you discuss on the first meeting? Yeah, this was a problem that was <clears throat> identified in SF many, many years ago. It, it's been known as a problem to to the industry. No one was actually doing anything about it, so... SFP took a, took a decision, we need to do something now, otherwise it's, we're going to lose this in the end. In the first meetings, uh, <laughs> you probably could be said what you just said. We were all different backgrounds. Some didn't even have mm -hmm. formal training in, in engineering, so it was a very wide group. So, so that was mm -hmm. quite good. But the overall goal, I think, that we all were thinking about is to make the discipline recognized. It's such a young discipline, engineering. If you compare with structural engineering or uh, electrical engineering, or, or even not even engineering like medicine, they're all recognized things. If you ask mm -hmm. a person, do you, do you know what a structural engineer is? Most of the guys can, any person can probably say, yeah, I think he maybe builds houses and do engineering and so on. But if you ask someone about a fire engineer, uh, you can get any answer. I mean, scattered so wide, so you don't even know that... Uh, what's happening. So that was one of the things, try to get the, a better definition of pioneer and to make it a recognized discipline, to make the industry aware that we need fire engineers and they need to be competent fire engineers. Otherwise, it probably creates more problem than it, than it would solve. I guess the second uh, issue that came up, if you want competent engineers, how do you measure competency? And when does one become... <laughs> from incompetent into a competent uh, fire protection engineer? That's the whole key question. And uh, I'm afraid it's, it's no easy answer to that one. In some countries, they assume, or, or it's wrong or correct, I don't know, but once you get your degree and your diploma, mm -hmm. you're, you're competent enough to start working. In other countries, your degree and your diploma is just a first step. Then you need experience. And then once you can show experience, you, you can show that you're competent. And mm -hmm. there's also an even further step where you actually need to get your license. You need to do an, a test, uh, an exam on top of your degree and on top of your experience. You need to do an exam to actually show that you're, you're competent enough. So there's a mixture of all these things all over the world. I think the minimum, minimum thing is that you actually should have some kind of formal training in whatever area of expertise you're doing, if it's modeling, if it's evacuation, fire risk assessments or whatever, you need to have some training. You just can't 
start doing these things without having a, a formal background in it. So that would be the first step. And then where does it actually stop? Uh, are we going to have licensed engineers like in the US or we're going to have mm. no requirement as at all? It's, as in many European countries, there's no requirement at all to be, be a fine engineer. But to be able to call yourself a competent fine engineer, at least you should have some formal training and experience in the field that you're working with. I'm going to challenge you a bit with this. Let's imagine I'm, my work is to design sprinkler hydraulics. And what I'm doing all day is calculating pressure losses and the areas of, of sprinklers and stuff like that. Do, do I need to be a fire safety engineer to do that? Or is specializing in within, let's say, NFPA 13 sufficient for me to say I'm competent? Like what I'm losing by not knowing and is it truly critical for my work? I'm going to be totally honest with you and straightforward. I think if you're a plumbing engineer, you don't need any knowledge at all about fire. I think mm -hmm. just you need to be able to design correctly according to standards and guidelines, your system. The fire engineer need to tell the plumbing engineer, we need to have this type of system. You need to have this level of risk. You need to, to design to these standards and that's it. And I think it's the same for detection. We can have an electrical engineer doing the detection system if it's according to, to standards. If it becomes a bit mm -hmm. special and you need to do a special detection system and so on, then of course you need to be working with them. My view of engineering is that when you're designing to standards, sprinkler systems or detection systems, you don't really need to understand engineering at all. You just need to be in good hands if you have questions that affects your design. But the moment you're responsible with the decision which type of sprinkler to use, what spray is needed for this class of commodity. That should come from the fire And that's the moment where you should actually be competent to do these choices. And it's not right. something that, you can learn by just reading the standard. That would be a line between this, right? Yeah, that, that's what I think. Once you start to design and say what type of system you need, what does it need to protect and so on, then you need to be the fire deciding that issue or deciding that question. Okay, let's go further. Let's go into people I love the most, <laughs> CFD engineers. Because it's a thing, you know, there's a bunch of people doing CFD calculations for fire systems without any fire knowledge because they consider it just like for um, hydraulics, it would be the plumbing calculations, pressure losses and stuff. Some people treat smoke movement and airflow in a building in, in the very exact way. It's just calculations of how a fluid moves. So they jump into delivering CFD analysis for buildings and uh, they just read out the values of what they've seen. Is this pushing the boundary of this competency? I, I think you passed the boundary <laughs> already if, I, if you I do that. That's a very good example. I, I can see that a lot as well, actually. I think it's a world spread phenomenon that uh, actually good engineers, uh, which are good at fluid dynamics, different programs and so on, normally specialized in, in ambient climate and, and so on, they are doing fire simulations as well. And every time I've seen it, it's been wrong. I can tell you 100% it's been wrong. The fire size is wrong. The fire behavior is wrong. Uh, the energy per unit area ratio is wrong. I can't tell you how wrong it is. <laughs> so uh, in the end, I've seen it done. But when it comes to 
review or third-party review or even authorities review, it needs to be redone again because it was wrong. So it's mm-hmm. uh, that's a clear example of when a person is not competent enough to be able to decide and to determine the right input data or the background to that input data when it, when it simulates a fire. So that's why it's so important with on-the-job training, uh, a good course, specific training in, in CFD for fires. I, I can tell you a few more areas where it happens. Yeah, yeah. Can you try one? Yeah, yeah, I can try one that you would like as well because it has to do with simulations. It's when uh, people movement, engineers, mm-hmm. pedestrian movement, are trying to do emergency movement. And okay. they, they get it wrong, not as much as the CFD guys, but almost. Because they don't know about emergency movement, how it works, the psychological factors behind movement in emergencies and fires. How will the smoke affect the, the velocity of the people? How will mm-hmm. it affect their ability to choose exits and so on? And you need specific knowledge to actually know that. And uh, they don't have it. I don't want to insult more people here in this corner. No, it's but, like, I, we've passed the boundary, Jimmy. Let, let's give yeah. them hell. <laughs> no, no, but it's really serious. From one side, it's obviously dangerous. It's bad for the safety. So it's bad for society. And you end up with dangerous buildings. But from the most pragmatic point of view, and you are running an engineering company, I'm working in an engineering company. It's the people who we compete with for projects. And so many times a non-fire engineer or a fake fire engineer was chosen above a real one due to costs or whatever. It's devastating for us pursuing this path of career and devoting ourselves to to learn these competencies and to be truly well all around fire engineer, right? So sharing this knowledge. And I really appreciate that you've said that you don't have to be a fire engineer to design the pipes or basic hydraulics, for example, or even smoke alarm system. That's because you understand that for some jobs, understanding the technology is sufficient to apply the technology. But the difference between the choice and application is is the powerful one. That 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 is fire engineering not screwing the pipe into the wall. Yeah, I think that's the, you, you put it there on the on the spot. When it comes to pure design, normally you follow basic standards and you understand what you're doing as a good design engineer. You don't mm-hmm. know to understand why that system was asked for or why this uh, structural requirement was put in place. You just designed to meet that requirement that someone, another guy, put that for you. So it's uh, for me, it's a clear line between most disciplines and, and what you can do. It becomes a bit blurred when we have these experts in some areas that thinks that fire is not any other specific thing. It can be done easily. And that one, when it becomes a bit dangerous, when you're not aware of that's not how it is, really. The next thing I wanted to talk is that, and you've also mentioned that a few times already, it's the same as with systems. In some worlds, you have uh, performance-based engineering. In some worlds, you have full prescriptive engineering. What about a fire engineer who becomes a compliance engineer? And your ability to engineer is taken away from you. All you can do is pick a value from the code and apply it. Uh, you, in a way, become a code engineer, even. How does that look for you? And... Is this fundamental competencies still useful in 
this situation, or maybe not even useful. Useful, they always will be. But are they necessary in that situation? Yeah, that's uh, it's a bit of a tough one because I, when I started my career, I did a lot of code consultancy, life safety consultancy. And uh, I think you have an advantage if you know the reasons behind why we need a certain travel distances, why we need a certain protection to stairs and so on. It doesn't mean that, that if you don't know this, you, you can still design a building. But it's certainly better if you actually know the background to, to what's behind the code requirements. So I, th- I still think you should be competent and you should have a pioneering background, even if you only, within parentheses, even if you only do code consultancy, because you need to understand from where did those requirements, from where did they come? They just didn't show up overnight in, in a book. So uh, it's not as critical as it should be because any architect can sit down and design a building which is code compliant to fire code. But if there are some changes maybe and they want to do some alternative solutions to it, it's th- and then it's stopped for them there. They, they wouldn't be able to do that, but the pioneer would. I, I guess it also depends to what extent your local system allows derogations from the procedures and from the law requirements and, and performance-based engineering. And you cannot exclude that your law system will change into one. Let's go further. In some aspects, the PBD becomes risk engineering. And for me personally, jumping from fire engineering into fire risk engineering, that's quite a a steep jump to be done. And I've also seen risk engineers come from non-fire environments to calculate fire risk. Because, for example, if you work for an insurer, you you sometimes would have to to do that based on just code compliance and stuff like that. So this uh, when you step up to the risk engineering how important these competencies are should they be raised into the power of two or you're making a really good point next to my final degree i have a, a second degree in risk management so i know where this will end up with but that jump from pure fire engineering to a kind of probabilistic approach to fire engineering is is a long jump if you're not competent you shouldn't even try to do that step and try to even make that long jump that's necessary. It's necessary for many projects related to fire. You do it for offshore industry, you do it for tunnels, you do it for metro systems, and so on. You you include risk engineering because you need to understand the risks of infrastructure. But if you're doing that, you really, really need to to know what you're doing. You really need to, to have a really good background in statistical analysis, event trees, or FNN numbers. A very specific tools that you need to use. You need use very specific tools, of... yeah. And it, it's not that straightforward. So it, it can be done. I don't see it for the building industry yet because we don't. there's no common capacity among the engineers to actually do that. There are just a few engineers that, can, that would be able to do it. And even if we all could do it, there's, a, there's another side of the coin, which is the authorities and, and the building approvals authorities. If we don't have that system in for buildings, it's going to be really hard to, to try to improve or approve, I mean, these kind of solutions. It would be re- really difficult for, for everyone to sign off on, on that solution. That's why it's only done for very specific projects where you actually need a specific team of risk engineers involved in, in those projects. And it normally has to do with projects requiring a large amount of investments. You don't want to 
waste money, you need to be sure that you're actually investing in like an, a large infrastructure project that's millions and millions of, of euros. So you really need to be sure that you're doing it well. So we will come back to the core competencies and technical competencies in a second. But before we do that, I would also like to ask you, what's your take on soft skills that fire safety engineer has to have? And from my experience, fire engineers has to have this very certain soft skills that not, they're not expected from many others. First of all, you have to communicate between technical and non-technical people on the design team or on the construction yard, from architects to uh, health and safety people to engineers who craft very specific systems. And you need to be able to convey the same message to both of them, which sometimes is a hell of a challenge, you know, to, to explain a fire safety strategy to all of the participants and especially the guy with the bag of money who pays for the building. And mm -hmm. as Benjamin Ralph said, they're definitely non-certified. You don't have to have a license to have a lot of money and build buildings, which maybe should be the first thing to, to license. And the second thing is you have to communicate with people who not always want to listen to you, with firefighters, local authorities. Sometimes it's not only communication. Sometimes you truly have to do proactive teaching to them. Imagine you're building the first road tunnel in your city or you're building the first huge warehouse in your region and they have never met such a challenge and you're the most competent person around who knows how to build them. And if you don't prepare them for the challenges that are to come, they will make your life very hard accepting your design or throwing bricks at you when you're doing things that are you're supposed to do. So being this local Educator is also a thing for fire engineers. What do you think about these soft skills? And maybe you see another important soft skill uh, that is critical. No, uh, the key is, is communication skills, is what you said, because you're forced to communicate the same problem or the same solution to such a wide range of different people that someone has, as you said, no skill, no technical skill at all. They're handling a permitting, a license, or a money issue. They're buying the components, something. And to the far, far end, to another engineer, maybe the, the third-party reviewer of the project, which is a fire engineer, mm -hmm. and then engineer. To, to the authorities that, that, that might know a lot or might not know a lot, that will have to approve this whole thing. So I think that's a key skill that is necessary. You need to be able to communicate uh, really well They convey the idea and the solution so everyone understands it. And I really liked one thing that you said there. Well, you, you don't need to have any license about if you have a lot of money to do whatever you want with that money. Yeah? If there's someone keen to invest in this and you convince them, for example, that this is acceptable and it, it will work, you better be sure that that will work then later on. A lot of pre-work is needed, especially with authorities. Before you actually start any project, Make sure that it will be to some degree acceptable that you have a path that is planned that you can actually convince them and that they are open to these ideas because that is all what performance-based design is about. You're, you're not complying with the rules. You're deviating from the rules. So unless that is conveyed in, in, in a straight manner and, and, and a serious and, and open way, the project will not go forward. So I think communication is the number one key, as you said. 
Okay, so let's go back to the curriculum document, to the core competencies. In that document, once you enter the fire protection competencies, the final tier of the competencies that an engineer should have, you have subdivided it into four areas of knowledge. In the first area is the fire science uh, knowledge, which includes heat transfer chemistry, fire dynamics. And the second area is human behavior and evacuation, where we cover the human behavior response to fire and in aggress and life safety design. Then the third area is fire protection systems, which includes all types of passive and active systems. And the fourth area is related to fire protection analysis. So I assume that's the tools of the craft, how the fire safety is delivered in the building, and it includes smoke management, PBD, evacuation analysis, numerical methods, and so on and so on. So this is really uh, fun because it's four fields that you could technically specialize in one of them and have a quite a great career in it. But what do you lose uh, when you don't know about the others? Can you pick one and just uh, be the fire safety engineer with that? Or still, you've made them core competencies because they truly are the core competencies. I mean, that's a good point. And I think it, it's both yes and no for that one. The goal is that if, if you're going to learn fire engineering, you need some formal training. And, and that formal training should encompass all of these areas. You should know a little bit about mm -hmm. everything. And, and then the specialization comes uh, on top of that. Mm -hmm. So I cannot say that when I went out from university, I studied passive, active, risk management, smoke control, firefighting intervention. Mm -hmm. So you know more or less what it was about, but you need that experience from, from working with it as well. And once you start to work, you probably, I mean, some people are more talented than others, but most of, of the people are specializing in some specific area. So I met engineers that are basically really just doing evacuation modeling or mm -hmm. structural fineering analysis or smoke control systems. and If you're getting into such specialization that you're doing that, I personally don't think that you need to know anything about the other areas. You don't have, you don't gain anything from risk management. You don't get anything from psychological behavior of education if you're designing smoke control systems. But I think you need it as a basic knowledge skill from the beginning. And then the way you've specialized yourself, you just need to make sure that you're competent in that area. And then we have the general pioneers that knows a bit more about everything of those, but they're not really specialized in any area. They know the basics and how to do this evacuation analysis, so how to do smoke model analysis, but they're not building the model, they're not doing the input, they're not calculating or look at the movement and so on of, of smoke. So I think we have all this, this spectrum, but to be honest, it's totally impossible for any one pioneer to be a specialist in all these areas. I, I couldn't see that. May, one or maybe two. <laughs> if you really want to study and, and be good at something. I think most of people are specialized and, and they maintain their competency in that area. It doesn't mean that they need it in the others, but I think they, it means that they need to know about it at least, what it's about. I've asked this tough question because when the document was published, I've heard the voices that the overall competencies written in the, the document are like, too much. That would have to be a superhuman to know all of this. Like, it's literally impossible to be an expert in heat transfer, 
fire alarm systems, human behavior, and risk management. It's impossible to, to have all of these skills. So the question becomes, what is the core of the core uh, disciplines and uh, how much time actually you should spend learning these basics and then specializing? When you're in, in your university training, it's it's kind of obvious, you know, it's, it's you have these years that are uh, shaped in a way to give you this progress into these topics. So when you're going into full FPE program in Lund, Maryland or Poland, you probably will get them all of them in a bit. But let's imagine you're in a place like Spain where you don't have formal fire protection engineering education and you are hiring a new person into your office and you probably cannot expect them to have all of this and you would like them to specialize in the thing that you need them to work on. So to what extent they should go outside or how much time they should spend outside of this specialization or is there any branching strategy that you could apply to make this the most useful for them? Yeah, actually you put two questions there. I go yeah. for the first one and then I go back to this new person hiring. The first one yep. you said that you cannot be a, a super yeah. engineer. Yeah? When we first launched the draft document of the core, and this is minimum technical core competencies, okay? Mm -hmm. I think we got like 250, 300 comments on the document. It, okay. it, took, it took us at least oh. three or four <laughs> months or even more just to sort oh. out and answer comments and upgrade the document to, to reflect uh, what oh. we think was okay. Okay. But the whole idea is that you're not going to be competent in all these areas. But you mm -hmm. should have a basic understanding of these areas. That doesn't mean that you're competent. You should know what evacuation modeling is. You should know what evacuation strategies are, different ways of, of protecting from smoke, different smoke control systems, what is passive protection, active protection. You should know that. And then your specialization comes a bit, also depending on the university you're going to. I mean, some universities are specifically looking into structural pioneering. Some are looking into risk. Some are looking into evacuation and so on. So it depends a bit on the university you come from. Going back to your question, I personally would love to hire a graduate from a fire engineering university. Mm -hmm. That's the best start they can have. Uh, if you can't have that, you as an employer need to make sure that they get the right education. You can do online courses. You can have in-house training. You can send them to university courses. Uh, and so on uh, in the areas they would like to develop themselves in and the needs of the company. But you need to sort that out. That's clear. You need to give them training about the subjects that you would like them to work with. They need close supervision uh, during the entire time. It would take them a few years to actually get to know what they're supposed to, to know. There's no doubt about that. that you, you as an employer, we need to give them the tools and, and education and the training they would need to do to perform their job task. And that's that's mm -hmm. money and time that you has you have to invest that and just hope that they stay in the company <laughs> and not and not change. <laughs> and don't and they don't don't go to Spain to start their own business, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but let's re let's revert that. Let's uh, look at the perspective of someone who's doing the FPE master's course, for example. To what extent should they specialize already within the university curriculum? Because, you know, some universities would go very 
deep on active passive systems and code uh, compliance. Some would teach more like modeling skills. So m some would focus on, for example, risk or maybe fundamental science. It's like these universities come in, in flavors as well. And it's difficult to push a person to learn, like to spend like a 300 hours on sprinklers and maybe they don't learn enough about human behavior. So I guess this balancing out of competencies is also a challenging task for the universities, right? It, it, it certainly is because they have their research centers and they have their specific skills and, and so on. But to a certain degree, I think the education facilities, the universities need to be a bit more coordinated and look into what the industry needs. My personal opinion is that it's better that you have a good basic knowledge about all areas, and then you can actually try to, to educate yourself in a deeper way in during your thesis work, uh, or even after when you start to work uh, in a company. You can do extra courses, you can read more, you can buy books, and so on. The key thing is that you need to have that minimum level in almost all areas. Yeah, well, you, you're running your own company, you're hiring people. There's a lot of young uh, fire safety engineers listening to the podcast, so... I think it's quite priceless to hear this perspective. If you had to choose between like a, a narrowly specialized graduate and one that has this, maybe not such a specialized, but wide field of view, would you choose the latter or, or, or the specialist? If they graduates, I think I would choose the wide one because uh, if they're interested in some specific area, they can always specialize. Uh, mm -hmm. If there is a specific need for a very specific individual, for example, I, structural engineering is not that easy to come about. Uh, mm -hmm. Aerodynamics is not that easy. So if you need an aerodynamics engineer, obviously you're looking for someone with those skills. Yeah. And you don't need a yeah, yeah. generalist. Okay. But I would say if you're starting in, in any large company or in any company with a, with a recent amount of people, you're probably better off starting off with someone that has basic skills and are very, really interested in simulations or structural engineering or aerodynamics or whatever. They, they should be able to develop that within the company or on their own. Do you think we train enough our protection engineers? No, definitely not. No, that's, no. That's my... The market for fine engineers is so good. I mean, you can find a job in any continent, in any country, in, in any market. That's why we have the problem with competence because there's such a demand for pioneers that all the non-pioneers are, are filling up those positions as well. So it's mm -hmm. uh, universities really need to be able to produce a lot more. They need to look into how to increase the programs to get what the market needs. And pioneering mm -hmm. and pioneers is that's the hot topic. It's always been for the last almost 30, mm -hmm. 40 years now. There's no pioneer that's out of a job. They don't tell you that on events where you choose your university and you learn about you can be a programmer or, or maybe a civil engineer or an architect. There, there's no this fancy guy who would tell you, yeah, man, there's this branch uh, where they literally run out of people and no matter how many students graduate, they'll all be sunk up by the market regardless. No, it is. If I knew that such a career path exists, I would take it. I, I took it accidentally. I, mean, <laughs> That's so cool. I think it's the same for almost everyone. They're interested yeah. in fire. Oh, like they have a fire near program. I wonder what that is. Uh, take it. And then you end up be able to choose wherever you want to work. 
And uh, yeah. yeah, if if we could have more influence in, in, in these young people that are actually trying to go into university, choosing a program, many of them would choose fire engineering, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Especially if you drive a Lamborghini for the, the interview, <laughs> you could borrow one just to make the impression <laughs> and make it red for sure. That, that's only uh, in Poland though, that you drive around. <laughs> yes. Yes. We have a very narrow number of chartered fire engineers and uh, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not one of them, but maybe one day. So we have this draft, this insufficient amount of competent fire engineers. And there are challenges today that need to be solved. There are designs that need to be done today. There are buildings that need to be built today. There are buildings that need to be refurbished or renovated today. And we cannot wait to train another thousands of fire engineers to, to approach this. We have to do it today. So first, what can we do or maybe should we take this proactive, let's say, stance and teach other branches how to do fire engineering and let them a little bit into our territory? Maybe train the sprinkler guy on how to choose the classes of commodities and stuff like that. And if it's in our interest to train these branches, to have more competent stakeholders to work with, can solve the basic problems on their own without engaging us and, and wasting our time, in essence. Is there a good way to do that? Do you have a good idea? This intersection between the fire engineer and the simple task that non-fire stakeholder can and possibly should do and possibly will do regardless. Yeah, I think it, that your last sentence there was the correct one. This will happen regardless, okay? So it, it's actually happening yeah. now. So what is happening then is that pioneering firms and especially maybe pioneering departments within larger firms, they are taking, uh, they need people, they can't find people. So they are taking the sprinkler guy and train him into a pioneer within the group. They will take the mechanical guy and, and train him into a pioneer. That could work. It's a very short-sighted solution because those guys doesn't have the basic training that you need. They will be very limited, specific tasks. And that might solve the problem, but they still don't have the basics. Okay, so what needs to be done? First of all, we need to try to make the market aware of that. There is a need to have competent engineers because the problem doesn't come from these large companies where they actually use. They are supervision. They are controlled. The problem comes from these small mm. companies with what they say are engineers, and they don't have any engineering background. They don't have the, the formal training that is needed. And they do work and they do a lot of work and they do it wrong. Mm. Uh, you don't notice that it's wrong. And no one knows that it's wrong. That's where the problem is. It, mm -hmm. It's a short-term strategy to get other engineers into the discipline and get them trained up. The long-term solution is to get the universities to produce the need, as they do in any other discipline, structural, engineering, mechanical. It should be the same for fire. That's an idea I, I have in my head. Maybe outside of this curriculum of a fire protection engineers, Maybe there should be a curriculum for the basic fire for non-fire protection engineers. A, a short thing that could be given to an architect, a structural engineer, a mechanical engineer, HVC engineer, who's not intended to be a fire engineer, but to show them the complexity of fire, the potential challenges, the oversight of possible solutions. Such a course could be quite efficient because if the other stakeholders understand the complexity better, the easier our job becomes because then 
they have an easier time to judge whether they need help with something or, or not? It, it is actually something. There are a few initi initiatives going on about that. I know one within SFP as well, mm. which is to produce a kind of a crash course for non-fineers. It's not mm. about them transforming them into fineers. It's just for them to to know what is fineering, so that to know how to who should they contact if they have mm. a problem and so on. It should be what uh, the basics of fire detection. The basics of fire alarm, the basics of smoke control systems, the basics of ev evacuation strategies. And once you get to show this to, to architects or building owners or investors, hopefully it should raise the awareness of them that pioneers are out there and they can help me with my project. Mm -hmm. In some countries, yeah. there are always pioneers involved. Even if you do a 100% code solution, if you're building a, a small building, you can do it directly. They are always a pioneer on board and so on. And in some countries, the pioneers are only mm. on board if it's a singular project. A performance-based design approach is needed. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. So you have this whole spectrum of, of different needs of pioneers in different countries. And now, now as a final question, how does the future look like? Is there Are there any plans or actions being taken to, let's say, standardize this, maybe in the form of licenses? Maybe in Europe, because you're so heavily involved with SFP Europe. And uh, I know there are some initiatives going on in Brussels. Is this core competencies one of these actions? Or maybe it should be in the future? I think actually more progress is being depending a bit on our organization as well. I know there are some initiatives mm -hmm. to actually start. Um, this is more of a CPD thing. There are actually courses that you, or knowledge that you learn after you're graduated. But I know there are plans on doing courses in what I just said, fire engineering mm -hmm. courses in different areas that will be orientated to actually existing fire engineers. They don't really think they have the skill in that area and they should have it and they, and they take the course and so on. So I think in the future, this will be quite an important part of how to, to feed the market as well or increase capabilities that because Some pioneers, luckily enough for us, mm -hmm. all of us, they're bound to ethical limits, yeah? <laughs> they know if they're competent or if they're not competent. So if they want to increase uh, business markets or increase their own skills in different areas, they look for information, they look for courses, and they take them. And they start to speak uh, with people who can actually mm -hmm. teach them and, and cooperate with them. But on the other hand, we have people that don't do that and they take on whatever job they they do, even if they don't, even if you're not competent to do it. So in the future, I think these courses and, and so on will be an added on to help us in the market to have more competent engineers in the market. I personally think that university is the, is the key. We need to expand and, and get more engineers out from universities for the market. But uh, as you already said, we're not even close to, to fill the gap of what we needed. So in the future, within the near future, these courses will actually help us a bit with that work, I think. So it's happening both in Europe and in the States as well. So I think it will eventually be a, a global thing, which is only good for the profession and for the industry overall. And, and sorry, and I said it was the last one, but it's not. <laughs> the, and do you think we should close the profession behind the license, behind an exam? don't think it should be a licensed engineer, to be honest. I think it should be some kind of register of, of engineers, 
kind of like they are approved by a body mm. or, or something. If we only can have licensed engineers, there's a, a further object down the line, I think will just slow down instead of speeding up the stream of engineers. We already don't have enough. We would have less. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's good to have a register of engineers that will need to show that they have an education, experience, and so on. I think that's a good step. Once that mm-hmm. is working, maybe the next step up is the license. But I think it's a bit dangerous to just jump mm-hmm. straight into license requirements for engineers because there will be so few people that would actually be able to, to get that. If you're looking in Europe, for example. Hey man, that was a really interesting discussion. <laughs> and uh, I know you've put a lot of heart and work into this development of these uh, core competencies documents and uh, the work of the whole work group. So where I should send people to learn more about this? Do you know what you should do? Now when you put the, the notes on and so on, you can put a straight link to the SAP yeah. site and you can, you can download them directly. Absolutely. It's a good document. It's it's short, it's condensed, and it's a great summary of what we were talking about. It actually could be fun to, to open it up when you're listening to the podcast and, and take a look around. It's it's interesting. And for uh, continuous education, any, any hints? Yeah, because actually, I think you can contact the top five universities. I mean, if you're really interested in getting a degree or something, I think, not a degree, but a course, most of the top universities in, in Europe about pioneering gives these you don't have to be a student directly to reading everything you can you can some courses are just for a few weeks a half a semester and so on mm. so i'm sure that people that are interested in evacuation modeling fluid dynamics risk management or whatever they can find their course and most of them are also online so you just need mm. a few days where you actually go to university and meet up with people and so on. I, I, I think SFP had a list of, of uh, lists. Yeah. So I'll link to that. And there is so many free webinars. Exactly. That's the, also uh, a good thing. All the webinars. around that. There has never been a better time to educate yourself. And yeah, yeah. I, I would tell you to listen to a podcast, but if you're still with us uh, statistically you're the longest <laughs> listening person in the podcast so i don't thank you so much for for staying with us so long and you, you are on a great traje- trajectory to be the the best well-around engineer if you're still with us now anyway jimmy man that was really interesting thank you so much for having this discussion and i think it will be very helpful to students helpful to engineers who are running their own companies Helpful for people who try to switch jobs. I just really hope that no researchers go into academia. We, we lied about the Lamborghinis. They are not there. Stay researching for science. We need no, that well. th- th- thank you very much, Wojciech, for inviting me. It's been, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And that's it. I think it was quite an interesting discussion, especially if you're a graduate student or looking for a job in fire safety engineering. I guess Jimmy has gave some tricks of the trade of what Uh, He, as a director of an engineering company, is looking for in fire safety engineers. And yeah, I I think so many important aspects of our profession were touched in this discussion. First of all, the formal training. Jimmy has mentioned that a few times that uh, he would expect that a fire safety engineer has a formal training. And in, in a way, it is true that you need some sort of formal education because that's probably the only way 
you will be exposed in a structured way to this complete curriculum of different five problems. And uh, I know you can try doing it on your own. You can try, I don't know, go and read SFB handbook from cover to cover, which will probably take you as much as going to a formal course. But yeah, formal courses are the way that can give you this knowledge necessary, this wide overview over the fire science and engineering in probably the best and the most organized way. And you get a diploma afterwards, which is a formal proof that you've done that. So this this can also be considered as the obligation for universities to provide this uh, type of competencies to more and more people. As we've discussed, there's absolutely not enough fire safety engineers, no matter how many we will produce, they will always be sucked by some company for a good job. <laughs> so uh, we need we need more of them. We need more competent fire engineers. And we also need to find a way how to get people who do fire engineering work, but they are not fire engineers, a little bit more competent. How do we secure that their work is not dangerous to us? Because it's impossible that we are on every project, we are on every installation, we are on every single fire problem there is in the world. Uh, Some of them must be solved by non-fire stakeholders. And providing them with knowledge courses, some other ways to expand their knowledge and uh, be more sensitive about the fire problems is definitely a way to build uh, a safer world. So I hope you've enjoyed what uh, I've discussed with Jimmy. I think it is very worthwhile to go into the core competencies document, which I'm linking in the show notes, read it up, see what it what it has inside, make your own opinion about the contents of the document and whether that truly defines a fire safety engineer. I think it, it's quite a good try at, at doing that. I, I really like that document. So, yeah, I think that's it for today's episode. Please connect with Jimmy. And uh, I saw his name on the ballot for SFP presidency this year. So if uh, you have the power to vote and you've liked what Jimmy uh, had to say, well, he can be your president. So, yeah. Thanks for being here. Once again, thank you for 10,000 downloads of the podcast episodes it's still uh, mind-blowing for me and i really really appreciate your support and and just listening to the podcast it it makes it worthwhile to do this show thanks a lot and uh, yeah see you next wednesday cheers This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.